In Africa alone, 55% of the population is employed by the agriculture industry. Jean Viev is an ex-banker and is now currently the CEO and founder of AgriLedger. AgriLedger is a social impact startup leveraging the blockchain technology on a mission to provide more transparency in the supply chain for small holding farmers. Globally, over 450 million households' main activity is agriculture, and only 5.9% of these people actually own a bank account. Jean-Viev is working on bringing this technology to those who are most vulnerable. I love doing things which people say are not able to be done. When I looked at the technology, I said, how do you connect it to the human psyche? Well, we all eat. An organization with purpose can be profitable. You need the balance of profit and purpose. Neither one of them should be high. It should be a seesaw. We have gone from where one organization was capable of doing everything. And it's also no longer where one country can do everything. We need to collaborate. I remember when we met, before we even got around to ordering food, and we were just chatting for at least an hour. Yes. And I think we'll cover a lot of the same things that we covered in that first conversation here. Okay. It was driven by a place of just pure intrigue because you are, and I'm sure you've heard this before, an extremely fascinating character. <laughs> in, in all the experiences that brought you up to this point and your motivation and just pure ambition is really interesting. And I'm looking forward to kind of exploring that in further depth. Thank you. You've got a 10-year-old kid, you've got a high school student that's interested in tech and programming, and then you've got a professional in the blockchain space. How would you describe AgriLedger to those three people? So for young kid, is about getting the farmers more money by getting them to be able to sell their goods further than their backyard okay. and making sure the money comes back to them. Okay. 10-year-old kid could understand that. I understand that. So middle school, yep. high school students. Um, it is probably for them is uh, explaining more about the inequities of the markets. What happens is that we always think that the local market is better than the market far. But if you apply standards and you also measure things properly, then you're, you can increase value of the goods. Okay. So the mango uh, or the avocado are very much wanted. Uh, you and I talked about how conduit no longer serves avocado because the avocado coming here is from Spain where they're artificially growing it. With uh, waste a lot of water. We wasted a lot of water. Yeah. In Haiti, it just grows. It's natural. Mm -hmm. However, that farmer is unable to get it to the foreign market. Two reasons. First of all, we need to take care that it's safe. Uh, that's the idea of phytosanitary, so that it's not going to make you sick. And the next thing is to get it to the market in a way that is fast and efficient. So if you can do those, then you can increase the take. So we'll use the Haitian mango, about five to seven, 10 cents maybe a kilo is given to the local market, to the farmer. At the local market, it sells between 50 to 70 cents. So if you look at that, you say, hey, that's pretty fair because somebody's got to carry it, got to whatever. However, that same farmer is paid five to 10, depending on the thing per kilo. And that same mango sells for three to seven dollars a kilo in the foreign market. Now, if you can create a system which keeps track and puts, really, we're in the service organization now, uh, service business, provides him with the service and is paid fairly, then you can create a mechanism whereby a lot more comes back to the farmer. Mm -hmm. And that allows also the benefits of that is that people can now prosper in rural area rather than prospering only in the city. It removes the congestion of the city. For a crypto person, hey, not using any crypto, it's cash. It is digitization of the asset and tracking of the asset throughout its life cycle. The asset being the mango, the avocado. The, the avocado, the can. And how is that done? When it comes, we put it, we mark it, we, we say this is when it was received. We're time stamping we're identifying who brought it in, and then we keep track of it throughout this journey. So 
what happens is that if you have something which is digitized and it's real and the real goes away, the digital goes away also. The 17 sustainable development goals, which one is most important to you and why? Collaboration. Why? Because we live in a world where we need to collaborate and if we cannot collaborate effectively, we cannot meet all the other goals because they're all interchangeable. Without better infrastructure, you cannot create uh, less poverty, access to food or education. Mm -hmm. um, better life on water or on earth are also a result of contentment and also or making sure that we have different ways of resolving them. And one, we have gone from where one organization was capable of doing everything. And it's also no longer where one country can do everything. We need to collaborate. So to me, that's the most important one. And then through that, we can filter to resolve the rest. Yeah. It's the best way to utilize technology, isn't it? Yes. To aid collaboration. And, and I that's, guess that's the power of blockchain, that, That's right? the power of blockchain. But I wouldn't say it's just blockchain. It's, it is actually a collaboration of blockchain mm. with identity, with AI, with big data. We talk about big data uh, or machine learning. If I can trust the data, then I can create more effective algorithm to get to the right answer. Versus if I don't trust it, my algorithm, or if the data is false, my algorithm will fail. So that's why it's important to even think in technology that it's not one technology, it's a myriad of technology and that also includes mobile technology. It is 5G is going to make a big difference mm -hmm. in how things are done because data is going to be flowing much faster. Mm -hmm. So all those things will make a difference. So it was a moment of just connecting the dots where obviously there was this incredible technology that empowered you to make a real difference and when people were telling you what the problems were it's suddenly the dots were connecting and that blockchain can resolve all of this. Um, it's also because I grew up seeing abject poverty yep. and I think that I try to not speak too much about it because sometimes the impact is going to be byproduct of having a systematic mechanism. So mm -hmm. when I looked at the technology I said how do you connect it to the human uh, psyche? Well, we all eat. Mm -hmm. We also all know what it is like to have a bad stomach from eating bad food mm -hmm. or have a bad stomach from that, from being so hungry you can't get food. So what you can do with the system is make sure that the food that reaches the table is good food, so that's food safety. Food safety, uh, there are too many, I mean, the statistics are staggering from the FAO. 600 million people fall ill and 400,000 die, and 40% of that are children under the age of five. So let's think of the human toll that that does. And then we all know about um, hunger, what hunger does to um, society, or food politics actually do to society. And so if you can minimize those to where a government can understand what is necessary, what is going to be necessary to feed the population. Let's look at Zimbabwe as an example. When there is failure floods which cause that the yields are not what is necessary to feed the people, the government has to take the money and go and buy food at a much higher cost than if they knew what was going to happen and being able to redistribute it. Or if you know there is a surplus in one country being able to redirect that at a much fairer price. Those are things that you can start looking to do mm -hmm. with the blockchain technology and you start having better governance around that. So it's not just about the chain, it's the reporting that's necessary and the trust that you're not creating into the data. So for me, uh, these impact uh, are things that we're going to be able to measure. Mm -hmm but I'm not so interested in the measurement at this point as more in the implementation, the embedding of the technology to then prove that it works. And then you can start looking at it for anything that is produced, anything that is yours. Why should you have to give um, your ownership early in the, in the chain in order to actually profit from it? And usually that is because the system 
does not have a mechanism to get the liquidity that is necessary to get the money back to you. Okay. With AgriLedger, what we're doing is we're actually creating um, a rebalancing in a way, in that we are creating where credit exposure will be at the buyer side rather than at the small. What does that mean? So right now, um, if a farmer sells and money is due back to him, the buyer is the one who has to pay. Let's say the buyer now wants to take time to pay. You can actually use financial instruments which exist right now to actually sell that receivable to get the money in faster. Yes, there's a cost, but the future, the value of the money today is greater than the future value of the money if you need that money. Um, the average uh, view is that a farmer takes about 40%, so loses almost 60% mm -hmm. of the value of the good in order to get cash right away. Yep. So if you can short, uh, shorten the time that they have to wait, but give them more maximum value, then you can uh, get them to where they are in a better position. The secondary thing is through the blockchain, one of the things that you and I can do is we can prove our income mm -hmm. because we're getting money which shows what the receivables are that we have from the work that we do. If you're a farmer, a smallholder farmer, and that information is not available anywhere, when you go to the bank and you say, I made 100 last year, they say, prove it. Well, now he has the ability to show yep. what his income was. And he has the ability to share that information with others and get, get himself into the ladder toward access to credit, personal credit. What is the grand division for AgriLedger? 10 years time, what is the impact that you want to make in the world? Um, I, d uh, I don't want it to just be about me. Yeah. I really hope others jump on the bandwagon and I create the mechanism. So um, this is probably bad to say, but I'll be very happy if somebody does it better than me, but I don't think they will anyway. <laughs> but. I, I, I have enough humility to realize yeah. that I may not know all the answer, but what I do hope is that we have accepted this concept of being able to, for at least higher value goods, create trust not only between the farmer but also the customer, because the customer mm -hmm. will benefit from this. The so whether it's you who brings this it's gonna properly be me. to the world, it's going to be you, obviously it's going to be you or someone else, what, what tangible impact will that make in 10 years' time? It's what going, difference will that make? Uh, it's going to allow people who are marginalized right now mm -hmm. to be able to participate in a greater economy. And then what will that bring? And that will be bring a certain level of happiness mm -hmm. because if you can stay home and make money and you don't have to move to go in somewhere different and inconvenience yourself mm -hmm. and be in a trap box. Uh, to me, uh, what I want to do is to make agriculture or uh, you know, basically entrepreneurship be able to be evidence my work, my value, and profit from that. If I'm not good enough, I don't get paid well enough, but I get paid anyway. So you're talking about you want to give farmers the opportunity to really exercise an entrepreneurial flair, um, have the opportunity to do so. Is yeah, that what you're saying? It's not only farmers, it's anyone who works. Farmers oh, are, the, are, are the first entrepreneurs. And we forget, we talk about seed, we talk about growth. They're the first entrepreneurs, but they have been subjugated through the market systems that we have now. Yeah. And there is an imbalance. That imbalance has created also a lot of risk across it. So what we're doing is we're rebalancing the risk. We're putting more risk back with the farmers, but removing the risk because people like to talk about the middleman. Oh, he's taking too much, but he's got the most risk. Mm -hmm. He's got the risk that the farmer is not going to deliver. He's got the risk that the other guy is not going to pay. So now we make them a service provider. They do what they do well. Increases accountability. Exactly. On and both ownership. Sides. And ownership. So if I'm doing something, and that's why I think that when I started this, AgriLedger is a passion, mm -hmm. but I also realized that it could be just anything. Anything that you do. You make this can, you want to prove it's your can, 
and you're doing the best and it goes through, you can get it to market and get paid fairly. Yeah. Art, any of that. It's far more than just agriculture then. Exactly. Okay. What gets you out of bed in the morning? And how do you stay motivated? Is it purely the passion and your drive pushing you forward? Or is there anything that you do in order to maintain that motivation and keep a level head? I'll have to tell the truth, there have been days where I just want to be underneath the cover. I'm actually more interested in those days than the days when you are fully motivated. Is there a common pattern when you're feeling demotivated and just want to stay in bed? And do you succumb to it or do you overcome it? I stay in bed. You stay in bed? You just got to embrace the moment. Yeah? You do what is necessary. Do you feel guilty for that? No. No? No. How often does that come around? Um, I don't get men flu. <laughs> yeah. I don't, uh, I don't know how often it goes through, but I actually, another thing I learned from my mother, it's mm -hmm. okay to be in bed. Yeah. Uh, any time of the day, you need a nap, just go take a nap. You want to, I work from my bed. Uh, it's my throne. <laughs> it's my, <laughs> it's, you know, I, I know I've gone home and what people to introduce and my mom is in her bedroom. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like the boudoir. Yeah. It is where things happen. So if I am not in the mood or I feel down, I just let it, let, absorb it, L let it come in. How do you know when you're not in the mood? Do you wake up and you're like, nah? Or is it something that happens? And as a, re and as a reaction to that, I think that's when you know you're not in the mood. I um, think there have been days where I just don't know the answer. Uh, so many pressures from outside mm -hmm. and questions and demands that I just don't know how I'm going to take that first step and I don't know how I'm going to resolve it. Okay. And so that's then when I go into my space to sort of like clear out and come back. So that process of clearing out is that literally you not doing anything and then coming back at it from a fresh perspective? Or is that time out you actually taking the time to mentally process what's going on? Um, it's not mentally process. It's really taking time out mm -hmm. to, so actually when I get really stressed out, I do Candy Crush. Candy Crush, is that your or advice? That's, yeah, or I do, I either do Candy Crush or I do word games. Mm -hmm. And that- Why it, does that, what does that do for you? I have to think of something else, mm -hmm. or if it's Candy Crush, I'm crushing something, so I'm getting that anger out, and I'm more concentrating in the puzzle. Mm -hmm. uh, puzzles are a very good way of escaping. The other thing I do is I'll do a lot of social media then, mm -hmm. and see what people are doing, or you know, connect with friends, or just watch really silly things which have nothing to do with what I'm thinking about, which then allows me to escape and then come back later. Because mm -hmm. if I continue in the angst, I just get eaten. And did you, is this something that has just really popped up since you've been doing Agri-Ledger or oh, yeah. when the pressure has been building up in your career in the, um, in the past? I never felt the pressures in the same way. In my How career. is it different? Because I'm accountable for a lot of other people's lives. And, and uh, how does that make you feel, that level of importance? Uh, at times I find it very oppressive yep. because I believe in my stuff, mm -hmm. in my idea, but then I'm worried that I have sold it to somebody else. And that... What do you mean? Because, see, it's about purpose. Um, and the what and why. Mm -hmm. And what I've learned is the purpose and the why and what we do things are very different mm -hmm. based on our experience, our life experience, or our drivers, or what has happened. And it's something that uh, became much more evident for me a couple of weeks ago. I did, a, uh, a friend of mine is running this series called Leadership for Humankind. And um, it was really self uh, exhilarating in a mm -hmm. way because it helped me understand a bit more about why and what I'm doing, why I want to do it. Mm -hmm. What are my drivers, what has happened in my life to make me there. So give us a few of the outcomes from that. So I love doing things which people say are not able to be done. Why? 
I just have this is in my innate nature. Right. But I also realized through that exercise that part of that is I've had life um, changing moment where I could have died. You know, okay. I so uh, in uh, 2003, I think, I was supposed to take a plane. Mm -hmm. I had a pain in my leg. So I went to the doctors. I called and said, hey, I, I need some painkillers. So I went in. Doctor looked at me and said, uh, I don't like this. You're going to go to the emergency room and you don't leave until they call me. Ended up, I had a deep vein thrombosis with pulmonary embolism and I was supposed to take a flight two hours later. I would have been dead. Um, through the dealing with that, ended up finding out it was lupus anticoagulation. It was a uh, issue with my blood clotting, um, and through the regulation and trying to do tests, they then found out I had fibroids, which ended up being cancerous. Okay. So, um, about the age of 38, I had to have a full hysterectomy. So those things uh, make me really not fear. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like I could have died already. So what's there more to lose mm -hmm. except to gain? For me, my drivers are not against money. It's about being able to bring the happiness to others. I obviously want to be comfortable, but I'm willing to suffer to get to that comfort because I could go back very easily and work in, uh, in the banking world and be very frustrated. Comfortable, uh, but frustrated. Very frustrated, but very comfortable. But this is something which is different. It's much more rewarding to me, not because of me, but what I can bring mm -hmm. to others. You're an extremely accomplished woman. So we've got written down here, um, you've been nominated for some of the most prestigious awards. So the Women in FinTech Powerless 2016 and most recently, as we know, the Black Women's Awards 2019, which is incredible. Thank you. I'm interested, from your perspective, where did your ambition and drive come from? Mother. Mother? Mother. I, I, well, no. Uh, my family always said, you can be whatever you want. The world is your oyster. So just go out there and grab it. If you don't want it, don't bother either. So I never took rejection to be a reflection of me. Mm -hmm. It's a reflection of my not wanting it bad enough. And okay, and how else did that materialize as you were growing up, as you were younger? Um, did that mentality, because that it was obviously instilled in you. Did you have, do you feel like any of this you were born with or it was all instilled in you, the nature uh, nature? I think both. both? I think, I think you, you need to have that sort of uh, gung-ho attitude. So I was curious. Yep. Uh, kicked me out of the house at two years old because they were tired of me because <laughs> I started talking too early didn't have teeth but could talk by the age of one by two they were like you know what that kid needs to go somewhere and I so went there, to school. so then what happened I went to school they sent me to school wow at two years old at two years old you're going to school so I went to and apparently my mom was telling me the other day that she shared some of my accomplishment with the lady who used to run the, uh, the jardin where I went, the, the, the school where I went. So by the age of five, I was already uh, in, in school, proper school so writing. So you had a nice head start. So, yeah, very okay. nice head start. But also, it wasn't like just school. Uh, they kept me busy. Uh, had piano lesson, dance lesson, classic. So both classical. So they kept you busy as my in parents. Your parents. <laughs> yeah, because why? Just to uh, keep you <laughs> stop at the talking. Just yeah. Keep them out of my hair. <laughs> keep them out of their hair. So uh, at I remember, like you know, nowadays we think it's normal that kids have so much parents and kids have so much to do over the weekend. Yeah. But I grew up with that. It was normal. You know, you from Saturday morning you had basically piano lesson, dance lesson, classical, ballet, and it just engulfed the day. And did you enjoy all of that? I did. And I think that's what made me where I am. And uh, another way my parents used to control me. 
Control you for good though? Control for good, no. Yeah, it, it, you still, it sounds like you still had the choice over what you did. Yeah, but, but it, it was the mentality over going all in on exactly, exactly. what you wanted to do. Exactly. So if you didn't behave, you didn't do what you were supposed to, you didn't do well in school, you didn't get the book that was ordered for you. What do you mean? So uh, I lived in Haiti at the yep. time. So you had to order. You grew up from I grew up. A baby. I grew up. Uh, I left Haiti at the age of thirteen. Okay. Um, and what it was is that my parents would order from the library. At the time, you had to order the books. So pre-Amazon, mm -hmm. you'd go to the to the library and ask them to get you a series of books, and the series would come in, and I would have my book withheld if I didn't behave. What age did you start reading? Uh, probably about five. Really? I did the Greek, um, you know, uh, the Greek gods. I had a, and I had this, um, I did Tintin, uh, Asterix, and uh, Obelix, which are, of course, like uh, the French thing, and, uh, you know, so about the sky is falling, so learn about that. What, what did you enjoy most about reading? Then? Um, the adventure, learning about new things, learning about being able to really go on a flight, which was not where I am, and letting my imagination grow. And I think that's what I see in my work, in that I see things around the corner that sometimes people don't see. Okay, it's almost like that craving and lust for adventure. Yeah. Mitch, matched with the concept in your mind that anything that you want is achievable. And kind fail. of made life a bit of an adventure in itself. Yeah, and you know what? I'm not afraid of failure. Yeah. What I'm afraid of is to repeat the same mistakes. How long was that a mentality for you? I think from young. Because part of it also, I should say to you, part of what has made me is my father passed away when I was eight. Eight? Yes. Wow. My father was an airplane pilot, and I actually learned geography at the cockpit. At the cockpit? Yes. When you flew he would with him? I would fly with him. Now that's an adventure, you don't even need a book. Yeah, so I think that my parents always saw a way of expanding my mind. Yeah. And, Do you um, think that was important to them? Yes. Why? My, um, I think just opportunity. My father um, actually wanted to be a pilot and he didn't want to go to school, but he put himself together and learned math and was a pilot, uh, went to the Air Force in the US mm -hmm. and trained there. And he was a damn good pilot. And when, and so I think that it was always a case of you do what you find enjoyable and your passion, find your passion and pursue it. Yep. And same with my mom. My mom is very funny. She's very um, withdrawn in ways. You would think that she's not a very strong woman, but this woman put three girls through some of the best universities in the world. Uh, I went to Columbia, my youngest sister went to Columbia, and my middle sister is, is a civil engineer. And we all studied what we wanted, and none of us worked in what we studied. <laughs> <laughs> but that doesn't necessarily matter, does it? No, it doesn't, and that's exactly it. It was about learning, mm -hmm. uh, arming yourself with information, and then with that information, actually being able to uh, give back or to feel confident enough. So my younger sister um, is actually working with special needs kids. She had a special needs child, and so she decided to become a counselor. So she went back to school and got her master's doing that. The middle one is actually a CFO. Okay. <laughs> and she studied engineering. But is that her passion though? That's her passion. She yeah. loves numbers. Like everybody would be doing things, and then she's sitting and doing math homework for just for the, maths just for the hell of it. Yep. And for me, um, my passion has always been discovering new things. I love traveling. Um, I basically escape at the age of 13 on my own. On your own? <laughs> yes. Where to? Paris. Wow. Um, my, but I was kind of used to it because my parents used to send me uh, to see my grandfather yeah. and get on the plane and just get going. And so I've always found life to be an adventure. Mm -hmm. And actually, when I was looking at 
forming something in, around the blockchain because I fell in love with this. I'm like, oh my God, this is information. This is, you can trust in information and you can now make decision and not worry, did I make the right decision or did I get tricked? And I thought about where would I use it? Well, I have two passions. One is travel, the other one is food. And so for me, it was about what I was passionate about. And was this the first time in your career where you were truly following your passion? Uh, or do you I feel would, like your whole career was in pursuit of that? My whole career was in pursuit of that. I've always been about helping find people, help people find their way. Okay. Why what, is that important to you? Um, because if you don't realize where you're going, then you're blind and then you are unable to be as successful as you can be. I think everyone has, and you know what, it's, to me, money does not equate happiness. Of course. It is about being able to be happy with yourself, knowing you have enough to make the choices that you need, and knowing you can have food on your table every mm -hmm. day. Those are the important things for people. Yep. And when we look at happiness factors, even places like Haiti where people are suffering, they're still happy mm -hmm. because they are feeling safe. Yeah. And when you don't feel safe, that's when... And it's basic human need, isn't yes, it? Yes, but that's also something that you see even at work. Mm -hmm. People not feeling safe, not feeling quiet in their ability to be successful. Mm -hmm. They don't need to be just the best, but they need to feel as though what they're doing, the contribution that they're making is making is some value. kind of tangible impact. Yes, yeah. and that tangible impact could be to the bottom line of the company mm -hmm. or getting an answer or closing something. Just feeling heard, right? Yeah. It's a basic, yeah. another basic human need to have recognition for what you're doing. And thank you. Somebody saying thank you. So I make it, I've always made sure, and that's some of my best managers also, have been the ones who say thank you. It doesn't need to be said in front of everybody. Mm -hmm. But that small little thank you makes you feel good inside mm -hmm. and lets you be able to do more. So my career has always been about how do we find something, a different way of doing it, mm -hmm. which makes people feel better and happier about their work and get them to understand also that change doesn't mean that you're going to lose your job. Mm -hmm. You might lose what you're doing today, but, you'll but you, can, more you gain more control or you can move to something else. Never fear moving. Mm -hmm never fear change uh, so why do you think people fear change because it is inherently positive because it's a sign of growth and moving forward but what is it about change that people fear uncertainty yeah okay the uncertainty of what's on the other side the uncertainty of am I going to be good enough because I'm good enough right now I know what I need to do and it may not feel good but I know what I need to do. Have you, personally, because of your upbringing and the values instilled in you from a young girl, have you ever feared that uncertainty? Because you've always, you're obviously armed with such a ferocious amount of self-belief that you can do whatever you put your mind to. Was I that an ever, ever an effect of you? It all? is a fact of every day of my life. It's just that I am able to surmount it. It's a, you know, I, I dislike change. Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that I won't face it and do what is necessary. Because every human faces the same. I was having this conversation with Tia a couple months ago, and like you get the same reaction. I think everyone has the same reaction to something, change. Everyone feels the same emotions, but it's how you respond to it that defines you as a character. I think the key is to understand that you can control to change when you get to the other side. You can make, you can adjust the change. So you might as well embrace it because a lot of time you don't really have a choice mm -hmm. of not doing the change. So if you fear it, it engloves you and you're frozen mm -hmm. versus if you look at it and you go one step at a time, you may need to take two steps back, but if you take that one step, you can then actually understand what is it going to do for you? Mm -hmm. And then adjust accordingly. And that adjustment could be going back to what was status quo. Yeah. But it's never, going to, step. it's never going to be the same. And what we find is usually that change is better for us. Mm -hmm. 
growth happens when you step out of that comfort zone. Exactly, exactly. And that's unfortunately something that I don't think is taught enough in school. Go so on. the world, you, you, one of the questions that uh, was sent by Tia was, what would I think is needed, is really equipping the new people with that knowledge that it's okay. You're not gonna fall in. We see all the time like these exercise of trust where people let themselves go. Mm -hmm. You don't need to let yourself go that far, but even if you fall, you'll be able to pick yourself up. Yeah. But, and then you will go on, versus if you freeze, that's when you're, you're, you're no longer the moving target. You're just dead weight And there. I believe those skills and that mindset from a young age breeds a certain mentality to find what you're passionate about at a young age, and therefore have the luxury of time to develop that into a life and a career and a higher purpose. Yeah, as well. but I think that for you, you talked about what you did, and in the most important thing uh, in giving you that ability is your parents. No, com completely. And your school. Yep. And so those two things, so parents can do, but unfortunately, that's what I think is needed in the educational system, is a change in the mindset of how we learn, and we all learn differently. And, you know, I am a very big proponent of universities and higher learning, but I also think that we learn through apprenticeship. And you learn by doing and experience. And by doing, experiencing. But it depends them. on the context though, right? So, okay, so let's take it down to, if you could change one, I guess, institution, primary school, so zero to 11, secondary school, 11 to 18, or university 18 to 21. If you had the ability and power to change one of those three buckets, Depends on, or just, uh, just, I think just in terms of the stage you're at in life at that point in I time. I think it's a stage, but also how you're taught. Uh, one of the things that I was very surprised in university here is um, when looking at the Cambridge and uh, Oxford, how mollycoddle you are. Mm -hmm. uh, how you have a tutor and you're going to see the tutor to review and it really breeds less quote-unquote failure. But I think what it doesn't do is it doesn't allow people to fail and to learn from those failure. Mm -hmm. uh, in the young ones, the 11s is, what I've seen is that there is a cramming of information to be able to take... It's a memory test. Yeah. I. So GCSEs, you know GCSEs? Mm -hmm. I um, around all of learning GCSEs um, and then I just applied myself for the two months of study leave, crammed it all in my head and I did really well. But that didn't make me intelligent in like what they were testing. That just tested my memory skills. Exactly. So what, how that does that serve uh, me? Does, well, you did okay. <laughs> I did okay, yeah. But, but I don't think it allows That's only because I had a good memory though. Yeah, but what happens is that if you're faced with a challenge, you don't have that because you did other things which allowed you to be able. So this was to pass the test. Yeah. But a lot of people, that's how they're being taught to learn and that's how they act. So which means when there's a challenge in front of them, they don't know how to react, mm -hmm. they freeze. And these are the people who are most scared of change because they don't understand, they've never really understand failure. In the US, we love to fail. And how does that manifest in school? Um, in your, you know, your grades, you the know, way you The GPA system. The GPA system. Mm -hmm. you, can have, you, you can have a C, but you can still become the most successful person in the world. Or you can have dropped out of university mm -hmm. and still let's look at uh, Bill Gates mm -hmm. and still be able to really excel. Mm -hmm. And so what it is, is trying things and going out of your comfort zone and having a thirst to learn, which is not just around the, the school, uh, what you're, you're supposed to do in school. So how can you learn that? So say you're in your 20s, you know you need a change, maybe identify it's down to your lack of risk taking and the, I guess, growth mindset. Get on how a plane. How do you learn that? <laughs> Go on. Get on a plane and go somewhere you've never been before and get a, you know, get a job. Try and get a job, try and acclimate yourself from there and then once you, you're fine, go somewhere else. 
instruct that way you're going to learn how people live which are not how they live next to you mm -hmm. understand the challenges of others which then allow you to appreciate not only what you have but also how to help them okay. um, I love what a lot of people are trying to do and we hear about um, financial inclusion giving access to internet to people but they haven't been there they haven't seen and it doesn't even need to be as far as Africa or Asia all you need to go is go up in the north of England mm -hmm. and be in those community and understand their challenges empathize exactly so that is something that is missing the empathy we have you know it makes sense you know I'm gonna try and make it for what I want what I'm used to and not understand how the other person would react because I really don't know their reality. So your career, when you really started to move into the financial world, when did that start to materialize? Uh, it was because I got tired of what was happening in the uh, medical world. And what was? What I was, was uh, so I have a degree in biochemistry. Okay. Um, my parents wanted me to go to medical school. I couldn't be bothered. <laughs> Why couldn't you be bothered? Is it just because you just didn't want to? So like, why would I do that if I didn't want no, to? No, I didn't see, the reason why they wanted, so this is an immigrant child's problem. Mm -hmm. If you're intelligent, your parents will push you toward being a doctor. Mm -hmm. Not an engineer, not a lawyer, because those two things, you're stuck where you studied. You can't really go international unless you redo. As a doctor, you can always go somewhere else, take a few exams and practice. So you are guaranteed an income. Mm -hmm. So the, for me, I was so social that I couldn't be bothered to sit there and go, okay, I'm gonna go through five years of medical school. Mm -hmm. And I decided, sought it, I'm going to do my own thing. And I did everything from working in uh, laboratories. Just to go back, what was your mindset in that moment thinking, sod it, I'm gonna do my own thing? I decided, so I did all my sciences, and then I was told, you gotta go to med school. And I said, nah. <laughs> I said, forget it, you don't have to pay for my school. And I got a job at the university. Mm -hmm. That allowed me to take every class I wanted without having to pay for them. Nice little hack. Yeah. <laughs> what, what job did you take at the university? Uh, I was the, I actually was, um, at the front desk of the school, uh, the the college. So was the it always was it always a way just to get any class you wanted? Yeah. And how long were you? No, doing no, that? no, no, no. I worked as an employee yeah. of the I got a job at the university, yeah. making very little money. Yeah. I think maybe ten, fifteen thousand. But as a result, you got access I, to all these classes. I access to all the classes, and I was the receptionist in the dean's office. I decided I had enough of it when I graduated from university and then yeah. I decided, okay, now I'm gonna do something different. Okay, what was the one biggest thing you took out from that experience of working in the university? Uh, it was actually dealing, because I was in the dean's office, mm -hmm. so I was actually privy to people who were having difficulties either with their school or their psyche mm -hmm. and coming in and trying to get help. Yeah. So you had very, very intelligent, this is Columbia College, so superbly <coughs> intelligent people, but who had some issues around feeling comfortable with themselves. Okay. And so sometimes you had some pretty dismal things happening or problems that they had. And so it really gave me the ability to empathize and to learn, I think, probably a bit of, you know, and now that you make me think about it, <laughs> it's how to keep people's secrets because okay. you you would see that person in other settings and you had information mm -hmm. and that information does not need to be divulged mm -hmm. to everyone and it I think it taught me how to listen I'm a big talker mm -hmm. but people don't realize how much information I'm actually getting yeah. a lot of time and being able to use that information later um, one of the things I know that I also do 
is I appear to trust very easily. What people don't realize is I'm actually observing. I trust everyone and allow you to prove to me that I yeah. shouldn't trust you. I, I don't start from a non-trusting. Yeah. Is that, the op is that an optimi the optimist in you? Or is that just something rational, like a rationality in your head? I think that optimist. decided one day. An optimist. It's optimist because I think everyone has good in them. Yeah. I don't. Um, I don't particularly believe in fraud. Mm -hmm. I believe fraud is a byproduct of necessity at times because I don't have and I don't have power, and that's how I ex exercise it by taking what I think is rightfully mine, or I should have a bigger piece of. That, that doesn't mean there's not some people who are just warped, mm -hmm. but. When we talk mostly in what I'm doing in agriculture, we talk about fraud. The fraud is not because these people want to defraud. It is the way that they can actually get access to bigger share mm -hmm. of what should have been theirs to start with. Okay. So byproduct of injustice. Byproduct of injustice, byproduct of lack of access, and sometimes it's byproduct of ignorance. Mm -hmm you don't know any better mm -hmm. so you so do well, you know yeah let's talk about more how you started to identify the ability to leverage tech to trigger some kind of positive change in the world when did that start to form for you believe it or not a G where a general electric oh really yeah because uh, one of the things that it wasn't the impact I don't think was so external in um, for the individuals but it was within the company so the impact was really reducing the work of the individual who had to do it who now is waiting for their uh, colleague to get off so sometime the impact that we have does appears to be more around the bottom line of the company yeah but it's really about the well-being the physical and mental well-being. Which also has a direct correlation it, on the bottom line, it right? It does have a direct correlation on the, on the bottom line, but I think sometimes people focus more on the bottom line rather than focusing on the individuals who are part of the organization. And when did that shift start to happen? When did that shift start to happen mm -hmm. for me? I Just don't in general, in your opinion? Focus on the people behind the uh, It's becoming now. Yeah. Because what happens... Uh, when you, the statistics are saying that more than 50% of the millennial today in the US work as um, freelance. Mm -hmm. And it's expected in the next couple of years that over 50% of the workforce will be freelance. Yeah. So it's not about gig economy, it's about the ability to provide services to more than one person and be master of your own destiny. Freedom. Yes. Well. I don't know if it's freedom, because you know what? Freedom is getting a paycheck from a company who has you come in from nine to five, and then, which means from seven to nine, you don't do nothing, and from five till the next nine o'clock, you don't do nothing. When you work for yourself, you lose that ability to compress those it's a times. It's different sense of freedom, though. It no? is a d if you wake up in the morning with that sense that you are doing what you, what the hell you want to be doing, whether you are working much more than a nine to five hour job. If you're waking up in the morning knowing that what you're doing is what you want to be doing, is that not freedom as well? It is a form of freedom, but unfortunately, uh, the system is still stuck up against the individual in being able to control many things. Go on, expand. Uh, one is, Excuse me. are you being fairly compensated? Is somebody taking the mickey out of you? Yeah. How do you uh, know your worth? How do you know you're getting paid an exposure? Exactly. Yeah. Um, because there is no longer the barometer of how much everybody is getting paid, mm -hmm. uh, or what the range should be by your experience. Yeah. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's one thing. That's that angst. Mm -hmm. There is also the what um, human resources have been done, sometimes I'm not very kind, mm -hmm. I call them human remains. Human but remains. <laughs> <laughs> but in reality, what they have served is they are keeping the governance throughout the company. Yep. 
And not only do they make sure the right people come into the company, mm -hmm. but also they have the ability to help resolve conflict. Mm -hmm. You don't get that when you it's don't a freelancer relationship. Exactly. But even as a freelancer or as a startup working with individual, you don't have that. So if things go wrong, you then are escalating to a much higher level. You, you have to go legal. And that costs money, that costs stress, that costs a lot of uh, angst that is not necessary, which is when bad things happen within a company, there's actually an part of the organization which deals with that. So I'd like to see how, you know, so we have a lot of companies who are looking to place people, but there's no one looking to help mediate issues yeah. when they occur and they're bound to occur. So let's move on to these Three questions. The whole point of them is that I'm not going to dwell on them. Okay. You're not going to dwell on them. Okay. I'm going to ask the question, first thing that pops into your mind, say it from okay. the gut, okay? Okay. Number one, if you could give your 20-year-old self a single piece of advice, what would it be? Keep going. Keep on going. Keep on tracking. Just keep swimming. Yeah. What do you want your hypothetical great-grandchildren to remember you for? It's going to be hypothetical yeah. <laughs> that she made a difference even when people said it couldn't be. I mean, we didn't touch on that. Uh, people like to say, as a woman, as a woman of color, I'm not able, not me, because I don't have that mindset that I'm not able to do, I'm not able to get. If you let the negative um, cloud you, you then fail. Yeah. So don't doubt yourself. Just know, as you know, the value of yourself. Finish the sentence. The world needs more empathy. And on that note, Jean Vier, thank you so much. Thank you. That was brilliant. Thanks. <laughs> thank you so much for watching and being part of the P Squared community. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe for more of the same content. Through the journeys, insights, ideas, and stories of our guests, we hope to propel you forward to execute on your goals and help you achieve a bright shift in this world. Till next time.